Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Todd Essig. Todd Essig is a faculty in training and supervising psychoanalyst at the William Allenson White Institute, a member of the advisory board for the Psychotherapy Action Network and of the International Psychoanalytic Association's Task Force on Contemporary Education. From 1994 to 2009, he was founder and director of the Psychoanalytic Connection, also known as psychoanalysis.net where he became widely known as a pioneer in the innovative uses of mental health technologies. He has served on editorial boards for Contemporary Psychoanalysis and JAPA, and co-edited with Jillian Isaacs Russell, a special issue of Psychoanalytic Perspectives on Psychoanalysis and Technology. In the aftermath of 9-11, he was board chair for the New York Disaster Counseling Coalition, providing free mental health care to first responders and their families. As co-chair of the American Psychoanalytic Association's COVID-19 advisory team, he was awarded Distinguished Service Awards by the American Psychoanalytic Association and the New York State Psychological Association. For 11 years until the pandemic hit, he wrote Managing Mental Wealth for Forbes, where he covered the intersection of technology, psychology, and culture. In his clinical practice, he treats individuals and couples. Today, Dr. Essek will discuss psychoanalytic perspectives on the differences between teleanalysis and traditional in-person psychoanalysis, and will extend these ideas to thinking about tech-mediated meetings outside the consulting room. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So teleanalysis has been used as an alternative to traditional in-person psychoanalysis for several decades by a small number of analysts, and recently by almost every analyst, for at least some portion of the COVID pandemic, and maybe even ongoing into the future. Because psychoanalysis has begun to theorize the impact of the in-person versus teleanalytic situation on the quality of the relationship between the analyst and the analysand, it seems interesting to me to consider applying these ideas to the dynamics of technologically mediated meetings outside of psychoanalysis. Maybe we can start with some ideas in current thinking about what is gained and what is lost in teleanalysis, as we understand it so far, compared to traditional in-person analysis. That is certainly a big question to answer. Well, I'll certainly try to get started with that. The biggest difference and the most obvious one is that in the in-person setting, the two people are together. And in the teleanalysis, everything is being mediated by technology. Mm -hmm. That is obvious and kind of silly to say, but everything kind of flows from that. One way to begin to think about how to understand the differences, uh, which also implies understanding the similarities, mm -hmm. is to kind of ask first, how is it even possible for technology to mediate an intimate relationship? How does that actually work? 
And the other kind of question that I think is relevant to kind of maybe getting to a point where we can apply what we're learning in teleanalysis to situations outside of the psychoanalytic clinical context has to do with like what's kind of unique about each of the two situations. Mm-hmm. So there's both the question of, you know, how does it work and the question of what's unique about it. The how does it work is, you know, familiar to anybody who has a familiarity with technology, which is that when technology is able to temporarily reproduce what takes place when people are in person, there's the possibility for there to be the experience of being, you know, present one to the other. The first time this kind of happened, it's only entered human history in the mid to late 1800s with the invention of the telegraph. Mm-hmm. It wasn't people using the telegraph to kind of send contracts or give messages, but the telegraph operators themselves, they were able to experience the presence of the other person because the immediate feedback that the that their intentions kind of achieved their goal was achieved. And actually, just a little historical footnote, there's a semi-famous novel written, I believe, in 1878 called Wired Love mm-hmm. by a woman named Ella Cheever Thayer who describes a love affair between two telegraph operators who meet over the wires and never meet in person. Wow, that's delightful. And it sort of speaks to some of online dating and all of these kinds of um, online relationships that we have where people never meet. It's a wonderfully melodramatic, you know, 19th century novel, Mm -hmm. where of course, they eventually do meet. But before they meet another telegraph operator, kind of intercepts the signal and poses, I think the character was Clem, poses mm-hmm. as Clem. And Natty, that was the woman in the novel. And Natty is horrified because this kind of fake Clem, early catfishing or something, um, <laughs> was really not to her liking. But they meet and they do fall in love, but they find that it's a bit excessive to have to have this in-person contact. And so the novel ends with the two of them stringing a telegraph wire across their various boarding houses so they could kind of like telegraph to each other at night. Interesting. Wow. So so that's the earliest versions of telepresence, this Mm -hmm. way of being present one to the other. The crucial factor in that, the crucial variable is that if you're able to receive temporally appropriate feedback that your intentions are successful, then you're able to experience that experience of presence. So if I say hello to someone and they say hello immediately back, we feel present one to another. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is important clinically is because it's not just technology. The people involved also have to participate. Mm-hmm. And they participate by having to have a requisite level of attention and desire and imagination. Mm-hmm. That if you're not attending, you're clearly not going to be able to be present one to the other. If you don't want to, it's very easy just to kind of look away from the screen or move the phone away from your ear. And that experience of being present is absent. Clinically, you have to overcome a lot of interpersonal friction mm-hmm. for someone to storm out of an office if they're upset. Yes. But if you're, work, if you're working on screen and someone's upset, it's kind of trivially simple just to kind of look away and sever the connection momentarily. Mm-hmm. So it's important for clinicians who are working on screen kind of to be attentive to these moment-to-moment variations in attention and desire. So telepresence can be kind of fragile sometimes, but that's mm-hmm. how it all works. This um, is interesting. It's got me thinking about a bunch of things, about the issue of distance and closeness and how it's represented 
in online environments and how it's represented in person. I mean, as you just mentioned, to overcome storming out is a far bigger hurdle and much more dramatic and has perhaps bigger consequences than looking away or even thinking about people who might end an hour by just clicking out of a meeting. Maybe that's more trivial too than storming out if you're upset. And I'm thinking about the love affair that you just described with the with the telegraphers. They didn't like the excessive closeness. They kind of preferred some level of distance. Does telemediated relationships say something about distance and closeness that's different or unique skills for attention to minutia or preferences about oh. the gaze or something like that? I hope people don't think that, that, that I told you what I wanted to say because your question is a perfect segue into that second concept about what's unique about what each context affords. Mm. Because what you're really describing has to do with what the experiences are, the range of possibilities that each context allows you to do. So that specifically with the negotiation of closeness and distance, the experience of closeness and distance in the two contexts was different. Mm -hmm. now, I don't want to kind of get into the trap of thinking about it as being better or worse, but it's just, it's, it's different. Do you think it would be interesting to talk a bit about how it's different or were you kind of pointing in a different direction? I'm not pointing in any particular direction. I guess I'm just thinking about that it really does afford us different ways to signal to one another that we are interested in more distance or different ways to take distance, different ways to kind of do that intimate kind of communication that happens between like infant and parent, for example, where you kind of see those dances that are intimately choreographed, where you kind of look away a little bit to get some space, but not all the way to say that you don't want to be involved, that those signals are different in these two environments, you know, in person and screen, for example, or in person and telephone. And I imagine people must individually have preferences or skill sets or inclinations that work better in different relationships for different types of structures. But I guess I was just thinking about that. It's yeah, not better or worse, but maybe I do better with certain people on the screen, certain people in person, certain people on the phone, because of how all of that choreography happens. The choreography is so kind of radically different, I think, in the two contexts. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. glad you mentioned the mother-child interactive context, mm -hmm. because a lot of what takes place there just isn't possible on screen. The moment, the millisecond by millisecond affect attunement that a lot of researchers have studied over the years doesn't take place because there's, even in well-functioning technology, mm -hmm. there's a sufficient time lag so that the affect attunement aspect of empathy, of coming to know another person, of feeling close to another person is not present. Mm -hmm. A lot of the interactional synchrony, the way that someone would move their arm and then someone else would switch in the chair and there would be this kind of you know implicit choreography taking place, that also doesn't take place on screen to the, in the same way. Implicit imitation is another process that doesn't take place the same way in the two contexts because you're not able to, the on-screen context doesn't afford that full body representation, allowing two people to shift and move with that implicit imitation. And all of that amounts to something. I think it means something to us, no? I mean, I mean, maybe psychoanalysts are trained to track these kinds of things. I don't know if we do a perfect job always tracking all of them, but it seems to me that if we aren't in the 
physical presence of another and all of that implicit imitation changes. Maybe it happens in the voice or maybe it goes somewhere else. Is it important? Is something lost? I, I guess I'm preoccupied with that. It's much harder. I think it is in the voice. I mm -hmm. think we do have intonation contours. We do have the pacing and the way we speak, but the range of possible inputs that can kind of signal the inner world of the other, the experience of somebody else, what they're feeling, what they're thinking is more sharply limited. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is, is just a, a reality is that relating online is much more difficult than it is relating in person. Mm -hmm. It requires much more effort. You're trying to come up with the same kind of understanding, but doing it with a much narrower range of potential experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I'm always very interested in is the difference between someone feeling understood and someone actually being understood. Mm. Um, How would you describe think, the differences? Well, someone can feel understood and not actually be understood so that that kind of has a shelf life. Uh-huh. Whereas when someone actually does understand, it kind of creates an interpersonal momentum that can kind of build on itself over time. And I think, you know, analytic movement takes place both in the experience of being understood and in the experience of not being understood, not being heard, not being attuned with, not being in sync with, and then repairing it, being able to talk about that and then repairing that mm -hmm. and how someone experiences those things which are inevitable in all relationships, becomes the, the, you know, the warp and weft of the analytic relationship. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you're talking about how it's harder to do that because you have fewer channels. And I agree. I, I think many of my colleagues have talked about different kinds of strains, like maybe eye strain or really feeling like they're having to listen very hard to what is happening in a teleanalytic hour because it's all they have. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of, you know, extreme focus and intense listening in a kind of unique way because there's only one channel, the voice and the silences and what's happening in oneself, but there's not the visual. I um, agree. I mean, I think of it as we've replaced choreography with poetry. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So and we've saved time by not commuting or not, you know, we've enabled many more people to come into psychoanalysis and we've been able to have a lot of meetings and so on that bring together people all over the world. But I think now it costs us. I can't make, really make a one-to-one, -one, but it feels like it costs us in some way. Like, I feel like I have to exercise more to get rid of the effects of sitting and straining and listening so hard. I don't know if Absolutely. other people feel that way. hundred percent. Absolutely. The self-care one has to do in a heavily teleanalytic or teletherapeutic practice is different. You really do need to kind of get back into an experience of your own physicality because even a teleanalytic experience is still fully embodied, but we're just using our bodies differently. I mean, there's certainly a lot more to say about the differences between teleanalysis and in-person analysis, but I want to almost push us outside of the consulting room and see okay. what you think about this idea, the business of, you know, ordering food online, which I did last night and getting a delivery or paying bills online, all the things that we do online, including tech-mediated meetings that are not clinical meetings. What do you think is gained and lost there? Because those groups of people, or when we're in those spaces, we're not in the business of 
providing our clinical services. We're doing something different. We're still meeting. Mm-hmm. We're still having to relate and be empathic and so on. But what's gained and lost in those environments when those are online as opposed to in person? Gosh, I wish I was smart enough to really be able to answer that with any degree of interest. Well, what do you think? It's also part of what you know what happens with teaching and classrooms being online versus being in person. Mm-hmm. I don't know the connection between experiences of that and kind of ordering food online and how kind of impulsive we've become. Not to say that you were impulsive last night. I'm sure you gave a lot of thought to what you had for dinner. Um, <laughs> But we tend to try to make things happen so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a slowness that analysis requires, a kind of a reflectiveness and a slowness and a kind of a sitting with things mm-hmm. that is completely at odds with our kind of emerging techno culture of having everything all the time, all at once. You know, if you couldn't just call out for food, one would have to kind of give a bit more time for the meal, maybe take a walk with somebody to the store, pick up what you need, decide what you're going to cook, cook it, then sit down and eat it. Mm -hmm. I think there tends to be a a way that we're devaluing a lot of what it is that we do and just kind of rushing through frenetically, trying to get everything done all at once. Mm -hmm. So I agree. I think there is something that's, we're trying to bend time somehow, like get more time I have this theory that we're sort of trying to compete with ourselves to maximize and squeeze out all of the time, close all of the distances as quickly as possible. And that maybe, maybe it'll be life and to make it more efficient. Exactly. Exactly. And I think we're going to be kind of like Icarus or something here at some point. And I, I keep waiting for it. Like, when is the moment that I'm going to realize that I've been taxing something by using these services and how much is too much and how much is just enough? How do I protect the reflective part of myself? I wonder about that. I wonder about that a lot too. I think mm. we're culturally in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Are we're there just- benefits though, maybe to this hyperspace, hyperspeed? I mean, if you maybe. own stock in those companies, there is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I suppose so. I suppose um, so. There's nothing wrong with convenience. I mean, I think that there's a point you know, at which the world is a normal curve. There's too little, there's the right amount, and there's too much. Mm-hmm. And I think throughout history, people have tried to make things more convenient, try to make things less difficult, to try to make things happen more quickly, more efficiently. But maybe we've crossed over and we're doing too many things too quickly right now. And we're missing out on the opportunity to actually experience and feel our lives to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Maybe the pendulum will swing. Or fall off its hinge and break. Right. Um, I've spoken to some folks who are deeply embedded in technology, and they seem to see a future where there's no work at all, meaning everything is so convenient that all you have is leisure time. That's what they're working toward. I mean, that's an intriguing idea. It's a frightening idea because I sort of think, (laughs) I think we get an idea. Totally. But they see it as utopia, which is interesting. If you don't have work, you don't have leisure, you have boredom. Yeah. There's a book written in the early 80s by the monologist, monologist, by someone who did monologues and wrote books. Monologist, yeah. (laughs) Spalding Gray, called Impossible Vacation. Uh Uh Uh-huh. And the basic idea is when you're unemployed, you can't take a vacation. You're just sitting around depressed. Huh. 
And I think that this idea of infinite leisure is an impossible vacation, that technology in that particular vision is driving us to a point where life loses meaning. And not because, you know, work tends to be connected to struggle and play tends to be connected to fun. But I think work and play should get connected one to the other. I don't know, you know, where you are in your work life, but I love the work I do. Me too. And the idea that technology wants to take that, or some technologists imagine a future where they want to take that away from me because they think a computer can do it better. I don't know if you've seen the stories that came out this past week in the media about character.ai. Yes. So myself and a couple of friends and colleagues, we've been having kind of faux conversations with, you know, Sigmund Freud and the dystopian possibility that there's going to be the creation of an AI-based chatbot that can kind of replace what a therapist does fills me with horror and dread. Me too. And not just because I'll be out of work, but because something profoundly human is going to get get lost in the process. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by how seductive that kind of future is to people. Yeah. Why this future of, you know, what I've written about is artificial intimacy. The other AI Mm -hmm. is is Mm -hmm. just so appealing to people. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to have a relationship with a chatbot to replace not to augment, not to have fun with, not to kind of use to to routinize some tasks so you can be freer to be more creative in places, mm-hmm. but to actually replace human relationships is something which just kind of, I don't know if you have thoughts about it, but it just kind of, like I scratch my head and I wonder what's missing there? Where are we going wrong? Yeah. I start to get very frightened that it has something to do with needing to, you know, a chatbot never turns off or no, it's always available. And I think it has something to do with not being able to tolerate any distance at all or any lack of control of the other. And it frightens me a great deal too, because I think there's something about the missing or the nostalgia or the mourning or the grief that really allows us to also have pleasure and mm-hmm. desire and all the wonderful things. And we value we value things because of their limits. I think I read somewhere, I don't know, I can't cite who said it, but if you give people a task to write a poem in a set amount of time, and you tell them, write it about anything, any format, any form, they struggle and they usually come up with things that are not terribly interesting. Mm -hmm. But if you tell people you're only allowed to write a haiku and you have 15 minutes, oftentimes they come up with things that are very moving. And so I I think somehow the limits of not having access to something all the time is what makes it precious. And it represents a a real loss of heart or something, whatever we call the heart. Yeah. That's intriguing because I would want to understand more what you mean by heart. What actually is getting lost? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. And I think where it's ultimately going to kind of end up is what's getting lost is the it's the capacity or it's the actualization of the capacity to love and be loved that we're kind of minimizing how important it is to have loving relationships with each Mm -hmm. other, whether it's a family, whether it's a friend, whether it's a lover, a spouse, whether it's a community, you know, whether you kind of just spend three hours on a 
plane or a train having a conversation with an interesting stranger mm -hmm. that you'll never have again, you'll never see each other again, but you have some kind of intimate exchange. Mm -hmm. I think we're losing all of that because now you spend those three hours kind of on your screen. Yeah. And there's something about even if you have a quote loving relationship with a chatbot, there's something about that chatbot being outside of the human world in that it doesn't have a birth and death and these like meaningful flesh-based sensory connections to other humans that make it standing outside of the thing that I'm calling heart, this thing that is, you know, what makes each contact with each person is that that person will live and die. That person has a family, had a mother, had a father in some way, has mm -hmm. people they love, has pain, and therefore we are similar and therefore replaced together in history and in time. And, and I think with the chatbot, we're not. That comes back to the difference between feeling understood and being understood. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That a chatbot can create that feeling of being understood, but there's no understanding there because genuine human understanding implies a commitment. Uh -huh. It implies a participation in a similar kind of history. Uh -huh. And I agree with you 100% that that's kind of missing when we kind of let technology determine human values rather than using technology in the pursuit of human values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is seductive then. It's giving us like an enigmatic message along with the technology, you know, about what it is to be human. So it is, it's really seductive. It's a problem. That's very much to the point mm -hmm. that at some point one has to say no to convenience. You know, you have to say no, I'm sorry, you can't do that. That's a loss. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have that, you kind of create this illusion of unlimited time and space to write whatever poem you want to write, and you end up with a blank page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talked about the bell curve. What is our responsibility? I mean, I think psychoanalysis has a unique role to play in this, because so much of this seduction is somewhat unconscious. And we're trained to kind of deal in the unconscious and somewhat try to translate, make meaning and make connections. What do you think is the future of our field, given that there's a bell curve and we might be going off the rails here? How do we keep things in the middle? How do we help our patients, our colleagues, maybe even society at large? I don't know if we have a duty to society, but I think we do to kind of talk about these things, move things in a direction. I think the future is not written, that's for sure. And a lot of my professional involvements are about trying to make sure that the emerging world, if I can be pretentious for a moment, includes psychoanalysis, because if it includes psychoanalysis, it means there is still a fundamental respect for fundamental human values like individual liberty, freedom, commitment to each other, empathy, community all of those kind of things that we strive to help our patients achieve and participate in, in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. I think personally, for me, the commitment I've made is to what I think of as the both and. We have to both take full advantage of what technology has to offer and simultaneously work to protect and respect the fundamental human values that are you know, really dear to all of us. So I think the way we can begin to be as analysts in the world 
is to adopt this both and approach. That's really central to how I think about things. We can't be either anti-technology or pro-technology. We have to both be connected to doing everything we can to use whatever technology offers us and at the same time protect what's unique about simply just being two people together in the same room. Mm -hmm. I think as you're talking about that, it's it sounds simple. It's very, very hard. I find myself since COVID, you know, kind of doing more tech mediated meetings, mm -hmm. but also trying really hard to protect those values. That's but I don't right. know if I'm aware of what's been lost because I'm still in it. You know, and I don't know if I can see the long arm of what's been lost. I can tell that my eyes are more strained. I can tell that I need to move my body. I miss the in person connection. I also like the lack of the commute. So it's sort of, that's a very initial set of ideas. I'm not sure what I will feel in 10 years or what what's really happening that I'm not able to track because it's unconscious still, or I'm in the middle of it and can't see it. It's both unconscious and it's also in the realm of possibility. Uh -huh. What we lose is the full range of possibility that's possible when people are present one to the other in person. Mm -hmm. And it takes time for those possibilities or the absence of those possibilities to play themselves out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but I think that keeping kind of the both and kind of strategy in mind, I don't think it's simple. I think it's clear, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it's a simple way of kind of thinking about it. How to do that in fine detail this is getting into kind of the the nuts and bolts of how one does teleanalysis and teletherapy and it's different than working in person mm -hmm. um, is to pay attention to the technology that we have such an urge to connect that we hold on to the connection even when the screen is pixelating even when the voice and the picture are out of sync one with the other that's the reality that is being dealt with and i think it's important that you know, clinicians, you know, talk about when this happens and talk about these techno glitches and make that part of the analytic dialogue, you know, mm -hmm. even though it's very different from what takes place in person. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just a little pitch there for a particular technical change in how one relates to patients when you're working online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It gets me thinking about the differences in generations and how we all relate to technology. And this is a, I don't have a a citation or any sort of, but I, I have a feeling that there's a, when I interact with younger people, Gen Z, millennials, and those folks, they have a really different relationship. They're very savvy and they understand what to do when things are pixelated and they kind of can ground themselves in troubleshooting various technical things. The older generation, you know, of analysts who may not be, have used technology for much of their professional lives with the exception of the occasional, you know, online meeting or online seminar, sometimes aren't so sure. I mean, I still get into meetings where, you know, three years into the into the pandemic, where people are not sure how to adjust their volume, or they're not sure how to share their screen, or they're not sure about some of the the things that are relatively routine for younger people. I wonder how that affects being able to hold on to the connection. This business of we're actually socialized in different ways with technology, and we have different different understandings of how it works. What intrigues me about that generational difference, in addition to just kind of the whole question of technical fluency, is that in my experience, you know, the Gen Zs and the millennials, 
are not only the most technologically capable, they're also the most aware of what the technology can't do. Mm -hmm. um, and they're the ones who, at least in my practice, have been most vocal about wanting to meet in person. Oh, interesting. That's something you see kind of culturally. Uh -huh. There was a, an article in the New York Times last week, I think it was in the Times, about the Gen Z move to old point and shoot cameras. There's a book a few years ago by I think a guy's name was David Sachs called Revenge of the Analog, mm -hmm. where people who are most technologically fluent are the ones who are most, and this is something that I find to be a source of whatever limited optimism I have, that the more technologically fluent you become, the more aware you become of what the technology can't do and the harm it causes. Yes. Unless you're, I guess, living out in the Bay Area and you're a technologist and you envision an un unlimited utopian future of constant leisure time. I think they're actually the tech CEOs of the major big tech companies here restrict their own access and access for their children and so on in a very severe, intense way because they know it's harmful and they're not interested. They actually want to have a life that is analog to. Meanwhile, they're creating all of these things that are not so easy for each of us to control. So I think I read that the Amazon CEO and the Google CEO, I think they all have their own routers, of course, for security, but they shut off the internet completely for whole categories of time. Of course, they have nannies and drivers and so on that keep <laughs> their kids yes. doing all sorts of other things that are exciting. So they they don't have the usual problems that other families have where I hear a lot about families that can't figure out how to turn these things off or how to how to actually put parent controls in place and so on. And I think it's very differently lived by different categories of people here. And we have to acknowledge the reality that for a lot of people, for most people, life is really hard. Mm -hmm. They don't have the luxury of a nanny and a chauffeur. Um, mm -hmm. So they can kind of turn off the internet for the weekend and a, a chef <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> right. yeah so there's yeah. a lot of i mean well then there's that infinite leisure but maybe it's spent with other kinds of things i think they have entertainment and so on so it's a yeah it's like a show all the time there's more to say about what the future might hold is there anything you'd like to add at this point or i mean as we were talking here the thought keeps coming to mind that i feel myself a bit in a bubble you know, in the bubble of analysis and technology, which I guess is the topic of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, any kind of, I think, reasonable discussion of, you know, what might happen. I mean, I think, you know, especially with what's going on right now on the West Coast with floods and what's going on in the South with tornadoes. And I think we're facing a, a period of time when, you know, climate change and global warming are going to create huge social upheavals. And mm -hmm. I think if we're kind of trying to kind of project into the future what technology is going to be, we need to kind of recognize that we're facing some really tough times in the years ahead and to try to be mindful of that as we're kind of talking about all of these things. Mm -hmm. And maybe technology will be helpful in those cases where we can bring resources from the outside to places where people can't travel or what have you. You know, one question that kind of is being asked is, you know, is it time to change the way we conduct professional life, where instead of having these kind of large international conferences two, three times a year where people get on planes and fly and so forth, mm -hmm. might it make sense to kind of reduce the carbon footprint and to kind of just meet online for that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are lots of questions being asked that 
you know, take into account the fact that, you know, the, the world is changing in very, very significant and dramatic ways. And if the analysts are going to have a place in that, it's not just the kind of the both end of technology. It's also being very much connected to what's actually taking place in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, we have to get out of our consulting rooms and be aware of the context for sure. That our consulting rooms are very much in a context that's changing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, I might add, it feels. Well, yes, especially out in the Bay Area right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and it's not yeah. just, I mean, even the phrase just used out of our consulting rooms, a lot of people <laughs> don't have them anymore. They have a That's screen. right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Both and. So you're working on a host of really interesting projects. Is there anything you'd like to share about different projects that are coming up for you? And you know, maybe as it relates to these topics or anything at all about what we've been talking about today? I feel like you've just given me that poetry assignment where... <laughs> I can restrict it if you'd like. You've got you know up to 10 minutes. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> as pessimistic as I, as I am at times, I think that analysis does have the possibility of becoming an important voice in the years ahead, primarily because we are of necessity keeping ourselves grounded in the realities of what it means to have a meaningful life and what it means to be an embodied person in relationship with other embodied people. Once you come to the realization, I think that analysis has come to that healing and growth and pretty much everything of value is rooted in the relationships we have one with the other and a recognition that analysis is really nothing more than a particular kind of relationship that has been evolving and changing and growing so as to maximize healing and growth, that we're able to kind of maybe resist the pull, the seductive pull of a kind of a of a dystopian technological future that's being sold to us as a utopian future. That it's still possible, like you know, you pointed out with technology and climate change, that technology might be able to be a part of a valuable solution to some of those problems. Mm-hmm. So I maintain a certain amount of optimism. I, I hope that comes across. Mm-hmm. I think it does. I think it does. I'm delighted by your optimism in some ways. There's some. It's nice to feel some directions of, okay, we don't have to. You know, we don't have to be so afraid, but we also have to pay attention. I think that gives me something hopeful to think about. It's really important to me that the next kind of generation of analysts and of people who will seek psychoanalytic care are able to see that we've become, through a lot of, you know, fighting and scratching and debating and so forth over the decades, we've become a very future-oriented profession. Yes. And that the image that is presented of psychoanalysts as these early 20th century misogynistic old men who smoke pipes, that's not who we are any longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Todd Essick. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Patricia Garavici about the dynamics and impact of viewing online porn. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.